TED Audio Collective. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until that presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case. Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com, designed for work. HBR presents. You're listening to After Hours. I'm Young Me, and I'm here with Felix and Mihir. Hey, guys. Hey, how are you? I'm good. So I'm in one location, and the two of you are together in another location. And my understanding is that you are sitting really close really together. Really close. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So how close? Like, so give me a visual image well, of the two of you. So are you sharing a headset? Is uh, that yes, why? we're like, sharing a and headset. Why? And it turns out the headset is, the cable is actually pretty long except where it splits <laughs> that part is not so long <laughs> so when felix disagrees with me i'm just gonna like elbow him really hard so if you hear him it's very physical him, <laughs> yes i just gonna... imagine the two of you sitting there like an old married couple that's exactly <laughs> what it yeah. is that's exactly what it is so i brought in a topic tonight that we spoke about about a year ago and since then, I'm really curious to know whether or not either one of you guys has started to vape. <laughs> <laughs> so remember about a year ago, we talked about vaping yes. and e-cigarettes. Here it is a year later. So have either one of you picked up the habit? I have not, I'm afraid. Me neither. Well, it doesn't really quite fit with your image. <laughs> I know, that carefully curated, <laughs> Instagrammable <laughs> image of ours. Right. But a lot has happened since then. Mm-hmm. So I thought we would revisit that topic. And then, Mihir, you brought in a topic. Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about precision medicine. Hmm. So there was a big initiative that has been launched by the NIH, and it you know, potentially represents a real step change in the way we think about medicine. And of course, it sounds beautiful, precision medicine. What's not to like about that? But I think it's a little more complicated than that. So I'm interested to know what you guys think about all this stuff. Okay, great. So about a year ago, we spoke about Juul, which is the most popular e-cigarette brand. Its primary product is a device that looks a little bit like a USB drive. It commands about 70 to 80% of the U.S. vaping market. And it's a company that today is now valued at $38 billion. So a few years ago, this company took off partly as a result of this hugely successful social media campaign that ended up being very appealing to teens to the point where high schools around the country started to become really concerned about this dramatic increase in the number of teenagers vaping. Since then, the FDA has called vaping among teens a dangerous epidemic, and there are all kinds of efforts to begin to impose regulations on this particular industry. So I want to start there. Number one, do you think it is true that vaping among teens is a dangerous epidemic? And if so, what do you think we should be doing about it? So my instinct on vaping and on Juul is informed by 
like a broader concern about what Juul and vaping can do for us. And my instinct is it can do some amazing things from a public health perspective. So what seems like relative hysteria to me about what's happening in the teenage population has the real risk of clouding what is the real massive public health benefits that are going to happen when people who are addicted to tobacco smoking switch to Juul. At the actual teenage level, the news is complicated, right? So first off, tobacco smoking has never been better. So the rates of tobacco smoking for teenagers, the data is remarkable, which is, you know, a long time ago when I was in high school, we were at like 20% to 25% of kids trying tobacco smoking. It's now at really low levels of like three or 4%. Yes. Now it is true that more kids are doing Juul than they are doing tobacco smoking. And so it has overtaken tobacco smoking. Now, the question is, is that a problem or is that a good news? And underneath it all, of course, young me, just to clarify the basics, Juul is nicotine, but it is not associated with a number of the other toxic substances that, of course, tobacco smoking is associated with. And I, uh, this is where I get really worried that we're going to get hysterical about something that actually isn't so bad and actually could be really great. So just to underscore one of the points that you made, so nicotine is highly, highly addictive. Yes. And so nicotine is the reason people smoke, but it is not the reason smokers die. The reason smokers die is because of tobacco and these vaping products do not contain tobacco. And the tar and the toxins that are associated with it, right? But Felix, what's your sense? If I remember right, the first episode that we did, I thought, oh, all of this is like just completely unproblematic. I cannot even understand what the public conversation is about. And since then, I do have to say I'm a little more skeptical about the development. Uh, I completely agree with Mihir's point. For the one billion people who smoke, switching from regular cigarettes to e-cigarettes is just the best thing that can happen. I think for teenagers, it's more problematic in two senses. One is, do we really think it's a great development if teenagers and kids take up an activity that is highly addictive? I'm not super sure. And then I was concerned by what are the longer term health consequences? I think the honest answer is we don't know. But is it as unproblematic as I thought half a year ago? Probably not. And just to be clear on the addictive piece, so presumably sugar and video games, and everything else that kids are addicted to. That's right, yeah. I mean, is vaping different than that? I think the answer is we don't know. We know it's highly addictive. We don't know what the longer-term health consequences are. And one of the problems right now in this space is that everyone who has a point of view on this will cite a particular study. Mm -hmm. Because you can find a study that supports whatever it is that you want to argue. But the truth is the research on this is just beginning. And the FDA commissioned a committee of experts to objectively study all the known evidence. Mm -hmm. And if you go and you look at what that committee concluded is that, number one, vaping appears to be much less harmful than traditional smoking. Like hugely less, like 90%, yeah. It involves as much nicotine as smoking, which means it is as addictive, and that switching from smoking to vaping saves lives. On the other hand, the committee also indicated that we do not yet know what the longer-term consequences of vaping is for people who vape for years and years and years. I mean, everything's harmful if you do it a lot, right? I mean, I think microwave popcorn can give you popcorn lung if you inhale a lot of the fumes from microwave popcorn. So, But I just want to push on this, young me. You know, we don't know the long-term consequences of cell phone usage. But <laughs> you're right, we don't know. 
But it's not clear well, that... Well, I don't think that's quite right. This is a situation where we don't have definite research. It'll take years for the research. And what does being cautious mean in the meantime? And I think that's probably a trade-off between costs and benefits. Unlike the cell phone example, I have a super, super hard time to think about, oh my God, how terrible life without an ability to vape. Okay, how about this, Felix? If you want to go down that path... Then what if, we don't have studies on this that are good yet, what if you can attribute the decline in tobacco smoking amongst teenagers to the rise of vaping? Would you make that trade? I th my understanding is, if anything, the correlation is reverse. If there is a concern, there is a concern that vaping is sort of a stepping stone towards smoking. Okay, here's what we do know. Smoking kills half a million Americans every year. That's more than a thousand people a day. So even though smoking is on the decline, has been on the decline for a long time, it continues to kill a lot of people every day. And so then the question is, in the context of a scenario which we find ourselves in, where we don't have a lot of evidence about what the long-term effects are, what the behavioral effects are, what should the FDA be doing? So the FDA mm -hmm. has signaled in lots of ways that it is very concerned about this. As I said, they've called vaping a dangerous epidemic among teens, and they're looking really hard at all kinds of regulation. What's fascinating is if you go to the UK, yes, if you go to the UK, the equivalent agency to our FDA is engaged in a pretty massive public health campaign that is trying to get smokers to vape. So they have this big public health campaign in the UK, which has hammered home to the public that vaping is 95% safer than cigarettes. So on the one hand, in the UK, you have a lot of positive messaging around vaping. And then in the US, you have the FDA with a lot of rhetoric that is But young me, doesn't this mix up two very different things? I think what the UK is focused on is the adult population, the smokers, people who smoke today. What the FDA is concerned is not on the adult smokers, but what we're concerned about is young people getting used to building up addiction to a substance. But it's not that clean, Felix, right? Because because of all the rhetoric that the FDA is coming out with, there is, you know, this commission that I referred to earlier, they pointed out that the number of Americans, adult Americans in the U.S., who believe that vaping is as bad or worse than cigarettes is growing. Exactly. And the reason is because there's so much anti-vaping rhetoric people are beginning to think, wow, vaping, it's yeah. as bad as smoking. It's even worse than smoking. But that's a question of communication more than well, it's a question of should we be careful? Are you, are you, hard, are you two really saying, so take a very specific measure, raise the age at which you can start to vape to 21. Are you really against raising this age limit? I'm in favor of the age limit. Why would I be in favor of it? What problem are you solving? And by the way, just remember Young Me's point about the UK. You want to craft a distinct message for teenagers and for adults. Yes. It doesn't work that way. You're going to end up muddying the waters and it's going to have damage. And that's why the UK approach makes a ton more sense. So this reminds me, uh, last show we did was around this opioid crisis and how we didn't know how addictive it was going to be. And then in the face of uncertainty, we said, oh, you have to be, you know, be careful what you encourage. And I think we're encouraging oh something God. where this we is, don't know the health This is the scaremongering. Come on, Felix. This is scaremongering. You just analogize between OxyContin, a controlled pharmacological substance, with what we knew were addictive quantities, 
but managed by the FDA with something that is nothing like that. Ask smokers how easy it is to quit. It's very difficult, and vaping helps them tremendously. But it doesn't do with the addiction. It helps them get off of tobacco smoking, which That's is what right. is going to kill them. Because it maintains the addiction. In a world where there was a better way to save smokers' lives, I'd be with you. Well, I could, there is no better way to save I, a smoker's life. We are life. in complete agreement on that front. I'm not talking about adult smokers who go to e-cigarettes. That's great. But we do it, just to be super clear, we do it by maintaining their addiction in a way that is much less harmful to their health. And now the question is, do we want lots of young people build up an addiction as if they were smokers. From everything we know about alcohol and other things, do you think that by making the federal age limit 21, that'll make it less attractive to teenagers or more? Oh, we know. So lots of studies done on alcohol consumption when drinking age was raised to 21. You look at the number of car fatalities. It's uh, successful. Super successful, right? I mean, that we know. But just to be concrete, you're going to trade off the probability of increased addiction to nicotine of young people with decreased vaping take up by adults who have smoking habits. That is oh, what I don't think that is the trade-off. I don't think that's a trade-off. <laughs> well, then what is the trade-off? We're not talking about banning vaping. We're talking about putting in a regulation that creates an age limit. And the reason I think we need regulation is for two reasons. Number one, I think it is deeply unfair that you could end up with a teenager at the age of 17 stuck with an addiction that he or she is now going to have to deal with for the rest of their lives. And I'm not just talking about the physical effects of that addiction, mm-hmm. but the financial cost of that addiction as well. That's just not fair because at that age, you're not informed enough to be making decisions. And just to be clear, by imposing a regulation, you don't guarantee that that happens, right? Because it's happening with smoking, but it's happening with alcohol, okay. it's happening with lots of things. <laughs> okay, but the second reason is because I don't trust the companies. And so without this regulation, no matter how much these companies talk about how they're not going to target teenagers, how they're not going to try to make their products appealing to youth, I don't trust them. I think what you will end up seeing is increasingly sophisticated marketing that is targeted toward youth because these products are really appealing to teenagers and accessibility does matter. I think that's true. So Jewel is an example where they talk about how they really care about marketing responsibly and that we have an age verification on our website and so on. But, you know, a few months ago, it sold a 35% stake to Altria, the tobacco giant, the Mm -hmm, parent mm -hmm. of Philip Morris. You know, they make Marlboro and other cigarette giants. So 35% of this company now is owned by the maker of Marlboro and these other cigarette brands. That, to me, created a real credibility gap in my mind. And so one of the reasons why I would love to see sensible regulation, but I think it's possible to do both, right? I think it's possible for the FDA to launch a public health campaign that encourages adult smokers to consider switching to vaping, at the same time making the product inaccessible to teenagers. That sounds very doable to me. So I'm coming around. I'm coming around. I I take your point that the corporations are problematic and they will start to market more aggressively if we don't have some regulations. I don't see why a 21-year-old regulation makes sense. Something more like 18 or 16 would be fine with me. Or 14, um, 12. <laughs> well, I mean, there's nothing magical about 21. 16, I think we would agree 16 is young. My concern is there are people prone to addiction and they will find substances that are addictive. And in that world, I think having them addicted to a no-toxin nicotine 
device is far preferable to any of a variety of addictive possibilities. Sugar, or alcohol. Any of, you name it, or tobacco, yeah. or, you know, I mean... Sports. <laughs> addicted to sports? I guess I'm just trying to think, I'm trying to think through what is so terrible about... Addictions? No, you create a financial tether. People are tethered to the product forever. And it's not fair to tether people to a product forever when they're too young an age to be able to make a responsible decision. If the counterfactual is one-tenth of them are adopting smoking, I'm not sure that it's such a bad trade. And I think we have to acknowledge that the evils of tobacco smoking are far, far, far in excess. By the British Medical Journal standards, 20 times mm -hmm. as bad. Yeah. We cannot lose sight of that. Mm -hmm. Let's yes. remember what Young Me said, which is there's now significant confusion in the U.S., about the fact that Juul and that vaping yeah. is better than tobacco smoking. Yeah. There's significant confusion. I mean, that is a bad yeah, world. Yeah, that's not... That's a bad world. So we're, listen, guys, we're running out of time, but I have to ask this last question. What's the vibe like when you're sitting that close together and you're having a heated disagreement? <laughs> <laughs> is there, is, are you punching each other under so, the look, table? Like no, what? We're, we're gonna, I'm wearing it? a helmet right now. <laughs> look, we're just going to hug it out. Don't worry. It's all going to be okay. <laughs> okay. Okay, Mahir, you wanted to talk about precision medicine. Yeah, so I think this is potentially a really exciting development. So let me just try to define some terms and then we'll dive into it. So precision medicine, broadly speaking, it's sometimes called personalized medicine, but precision medicine is a little bit more precise, which is these are medical treatments that don't necessarily tailor to you personally, but tailor to your characteristics. So for example, you would be assigned one particular drug for your condition based on your genetic makeup, as opposed to another kind of drug, which is going to be more effective for you. And that's the sense in which is called precision medicine. Now, that in particular has gotten very exciting now because the NIH has been creating a database called All of Us, which is now released to the public. And it has about 100,000 people. They're trying to get to a million people. And you can contribute your genetic material, your blood and your urine. You give access to electronic health records. And then that is going to become now a database that anybody can search. Obviously, they take away all names. They have really gone to some lengths to ensure anonymity. But then that becomes a way of serving as the foundation for a new revolution in precision medicine. So the first question is, is this really a step change? There have been some people who claim this is all way overhyped and there's nothing here. And so that question I'm curious what your thoughts are. And Mahir, precision medicine encompasses not just your biological characteristics, but also my understanding is it includes lifestyle characteristics, the environment. Exactly. And all for the purposes of designing better therapeutic treatments. So like, you right. know, let's say young me, you're a certain type of person, you do certain things in your lifestyle, and you are, as a consequence, maybe better suited to this drug. So what do you make of it, young me? It's funny, when you said you wanted to talk about this, I was thinking... It is a little crazy to think about how crude our segmentation is in medicine. <laughs> in every other yes. consumer-facing industry, we have gotten to the point where we are able to divide the population into micro-segments. I mean, this is what Google's advertising engine does. This is what Facebook's advertising engine does. And then what we do is we try to address these micro-segments in lots of different ways. Mm -hmm. And then you go to medicine 
And in medicine, the segmentation is so crude. It's just kids versus adults, men versus Blood women. Types. <laughs> and in a way, young me, it's even worse, right? Because we know that a lot of medicine has been targeted mm -hmm. historically towards populations that are not representative. Yeah, and so exactly. women and underserved minorities don't actually get served very well. One of the promises here actually, and in fact, in all of us, we have a lot more underrepresented minorities than we normally have in medical studies. So yeah, even more so, yeah. Yeah. So one of the things I did recently is I was talking to my sister. So my sister and my brother-in-law, both of them are doctors and medical researchers. And I asked them, on a scale of one to 10, how would you rate the promise of precision medicine? And they both gave it an eight. And one of the things my sister said to me was she said, think about like even the basics, like simple things. Forget customized drugs and all the more sophisticated things, but even the basics. So in pediatrics, for example, we give drug doses based on the weight of the child. Right. But that doesn't happen in adults. So I would get the same dose of blood pressure medicine that you would, even though we are completely different in terms of our size. And so even developing precision in that regard would be a first step. The other example she cited was think about how we treat things like depression or ADHD. If you have ever gotten treated for either one of those two things, or if you know anyone that has, what ends up happening is that there's a whole bunch of trial and error. And the doctor will give you some medication. It doesn't work. Try a different kind. Try a different kind until you figure out what's right. And this process can take months and in some cases years to figure out what is the right treatment for you. Precision medicine is designed to eliminate all of those steps. If we just mm -hmm. could do some genetics on that patient, we could see which drug and dose to use. I share your enthusiasm and the enthusiasm of your sister. It, it just seems in the age of Stitch Fix, when I have, I don't know, hundreds <laughs> of data points about what shirt you might want to wear, the idea mm -hmm. of one size fits all in medicine, it's almost incomprehensible mm -hmm. why we do it this way. And then I think if this actually works, there will be two really tough types of decisions to make. We will see lots of genetic information and genetic variations for which we don't have a drug. Hmm. And then the logic and the economics of drug development are such that you now have considerable R&D expenses for relatively small groups. And then we need to think about as a society, can we afford it? And if we think we can afford it, how do we pay for it? Like how small can the group be before we say, well, actually, that is just too unusual for us to support the kind of drug development that you want. And, and the corollary to that, of course, is that a company's willingness is going to be a function of patients' willingness to pay. And so yeah. mm -hmm. the corresponding inequities in the healthcare system yeah. could grow larger, yes. if anything. Yeah. But it has this aspect, which is I think it potentially solves a problem of underrepresented groups yeah. not being represented in patient pools in the right way. And I think that's very powerful. But I can't help but think the longer run effects of this are going to increase inequities in healthcare delivery because of the costs associated with developing yeah. these drugs yes. and with the costs of tailoring things. And, you know, you started off, Young Me, in the right way, which is this is all about segmentation. Mm -hmm. And what does segmentation imply? Segmentation implies, in part, lots more heterogeneity mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. potentially lots more inequity yeah. in the way that products well, are delivered because we think people need different things. Yeah. Um, and in this case, maybe because people can afford different things. So that's my concern. But I mean, this is likely to happen at multiple layers. So you'll see it with respect to which drugs are developed for which people and for which population segments. But then also the cost of training doctors and medical professionals 
to practice medicine in this way. Exactly. You can imagine there's going to be a segment of doctors that get really, really good at it. There are going to be doctors that are less good at it. There are going to be hospitals that are better than other hospitals and so on. In some ways, what you're seeing here is our healthcare system in full effect, the complexity and the fragmentation. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, us being able to innovate in ways that maybe other countries are not able to, right. you're seeing both of those things. Well, so um, the, but this is, and this is where I think things get complicated, young me, which is, so the NIH has started this all of us initiative, several hundred million dollars. My instinct is that to get it to even greater scale, we're talking billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in a way, in the background, we have to ask ourselves, what's the cost benefit relative to other uses? Yeah. Yeah. And my instinct is actually... It's just enormously powerful, and we should be going full speed ahead. So let me ask you guys this, then. One of the problems is is that they're going to create this database that anybody can access, any researcher, anybody can access, right. or at least that's my understanding. What you don't have is you don't have somebody sitting at the top of this thing saying, here's what the strategic priority is, and doing that cost-benefit of ana- analysis and having that dictate the direction in which mm-hmm. the research happens. Mm-hmm. But do you, I mean, are you, are you saying, young me, it seems like you kind of want it to be more directed. But an open system is an open system, and so, people will do it, what they will. Yes, for the research, it's open. And then I think but what matters is what companies will make out of this information is, of mm-hmm. course, tied back to the financial incentives to right. develop a particular set of drugs. And I personally actually quite like this UK approach, which essentially asks how many life years do we gain by having a particular drug? And then there's a standard. And if a drug proposal falls below that standard, you're not going to get that drug. And if it's less than that, you're going to get that drug. So you have a consistent standard that tells you when society should invest and when it shouldn't invest. And it's basically weighted by how much longer are you going to live and what's the quality of your life going to be. Right. And that cost-benefit analysis, of course, is tremendously sensical. It is part of ACA, Obamacare, and one was one of the most controversial pieces of it because yes. it was christened yeah. as a death yeah. panel. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but, you know, it is, I think, absolutely the right way to go. And in this context, it gets to be even more Powerful. And much more important, right? Because we have all these expensive ideas that play out for smaller groups. And I think we just have to get used to not being able to afford everything that is technically feasible. Yeah, but this is, I think, where the real puzzle is, right? Which is just as the technological possibilities are becoming more and more tantalizing and more and more robust, we're hitting a point of cost consciousness. But I, my instinct is that, God, the possibilities in this space... This is really a step change, and we should be investing heavily. Let me ask you a question I want to make sure and ask before we stop, which is, are you going to sign up for all of us? Are you willing to give your electronic health records and your blood and urine, and will you sign up for this? I absolutely would. I'm probably overrepresented as a type in in pharmaceutical (laughs) research as it is, so I don't know if I would add much, but Mm -hmm. the way they've done it and the way they safeguard the data and safeguard the identities, I think is very convincing. And I hope they get to a million people. What do you say, young me? Are you going to sign up? You know, it's really interesting, but I have no problem sharing my information with them. And I'm the kind of person that when it comes to a lot of commercial activity, I guard my information pretty jealously. Right. And so I find myself surprised at how, I, I don't know where that confidence comes from, but I am very comfortable sharing how about it's, you, Mihir? Which well, is it's funny. Well, it's so funny because when I when I first started reading about it, my knee jerk response was, "Wait a second, <laughs> yeah. am I going to share my data?" And then within ten or twenty seconds, I was like, "Yeah, I am." 
Yeah. I, mean, I think this yeah. is so powerful and so yeah. important. And part of the reason I wanted to do this is it's such an amazing yeah. possibility. Yeah. Um, Super and I think exciting. These, and these problems are there, but they're, I think, relatively speaking, small. Anyway, well, it's certainly something that we should keep an eye on. Mm-hmm. And I'll be in line behind you, young me, given my information. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Okay, recommendations. Felix, what you got? I have a book recommendation. It's a few years old, but it's a book by Dwight Eschleman and Steve Ettlinger. And it's called Ingredients, a visual exploration of 75 additives and 25 food products. And what they have done, which I think is actually just like a fabulous idea, is you know how you read the food labels and it's like all these things you never heard of. Mm -hmm. So what they do is they take food additives and they explain what these additives are, and then they photograph it. So you have a visual depiction of all these food additives that you never really heard of and never really knew what they are. And then I think even more interesting is they do it for food products also. So they take Red Bull, Cool Whip, a Twinkie, a Campbell soup, and you can literally see all the things that are in a <laughs> cup of soup or that are in a Twinkie. It's a very, it's Wait, a great. So what, like, what does it look like? Oh, so it's 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 almost, you know when you get ready for a meal, what they call mise en place, when you have all yeah, these little. It's place, like yes. that, except it's all these artificial it's ingredients. Chemicals, right? It's all these chemicals. It's test tubes. Are, right, yeah. <laughs> the other thing that I thought was very interesting, it's not as though they have an axe to grind. I mean, food additives are a fact of life, and they just give you a little bit of the science background uh, that is interesting to learn about. Let's just say let's just say this young me, he snarfed down three Twinkies during the last segment. So. <laughs> yes. And there's a reason for that. <laughs> and it's called Ingredients, a visual exploration of 75 additives and 25 food products. Okay, I too have a book recommendation. So I don't know about you guys, but I go through these phases where I just read lots of nonfiction. Yeah. And then I hit a wall and I'm so tired of learning stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so then I just want to read fiction for a while. So I'm in a, you know, just escapist fiction mode. So this is a book called uh, Bel Canto. It's about 10 years old from Ann Patchett. Oh, sure. Mm. Yeah. Oh, you've both yeah. read Yeah, that's fantastic. It's so yeah. fantastic. It's so, like a book club. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it's her best book, I've decided. So it takes place in an unnamed South American country. And there are a bunch of people gathered for a big shindig, and everybody is taken hostage by this band of 18 terrorists. And so among the hostages, there's this Japanese business executive. There's this American soprano singer. There's a whole assortment of Russian, Italian, French (laughs) diplomatic types, everybody together. And she really gets inside the psyche of not just the hostages, but the terrorists right. as well. I loved it because I mean, she's an incredible writer, right? I mean, so she writes beautifully, oh, but it's her got prose this. Is so it's like beautiful. incredible, but it has this backdrop of suspense, meaning like undercurrent. Mm-hmm. There's there's tension, That's right? Really interesting. Yeah. And so normally books that are like that are written by people who don't write in such a high literary style. But she combines like beautiful writing with like really interesting tension, and I thought that was fantastic. Yeah. So the book is called Bel Canto, and it's by Anne Patchett. So I have a super goofy uh, recommendation. So, you know, there's that Crosby, Stills, Nash song about like, you know, children, teach your parents Mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. So I found myself goading my children into writing thank you notes 
for their birthday party recently. And I realized that I had not handwritten a thank you note in, I don't know how long, like maybe like a long, long, long long time. (laughs) Um, And so I wrote three thank you notes. And as it happens, it was at a time of- You wrote me a thank you note? No. Okay, you're next on my list. Now I have to write you a thank you note. Anyway, so I wrote three thank you notes. And I have to say, it was a spectacular thing to do. And not, not because of the effect on the recipient, but just that act is like a great thing. Mm-hmm. So it is one of those instances where you're telling your children to do something and then you realize you don't do it yourself. And then you do it yourself and you realize, man, is it important to do. And so my little recommendation is handwrite a thank you card. It, it actually makes your soul feel a little bit better than it felt before. So that's my recommendation for the week. Beautiful. That is a nice recommendation. A nice way to end today as well. So that's it for this week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This is After Hours from the HBR Podcast Network. Support for the show comes from Economist Education. On After Hours, we've discussed how powerful and impactful it can be to use data to share complex stories. And Economist Education has a new course on data storytelling and visualization that I highly recommend. It's super fascinating stuff. And you can discover how to find, collect, and analyze data, harness it to craft a compelling message or narrative. These courses last about two to six weeks. They are online programs designed to empower you. Economist Education is a great way to stay ahead in your career, and I have a special offer to get you started. You can get 15% off any course from Economist Education, only available by going to our exclusive URL, education.economist.com slash after hours, and enter my promo code after hours at registration. This offer ends on March 31st, so don't wait. For 15% off, go now to education.economist.com slash after hours and use promo code after hours at registration.